Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading the story of the first Christians from the book of Acts together. Uh, and last week we read about the apostles uh, being thrown into prison twice uh, and then being beaten uh, because they disregarded the authorities' request that they just stop talking about Jesus. Uh, and we're going to pick up this morning right where we left off. I'm going to read the beginning of chapter 6, and then we'll skip over what is the largest speech in the book, and then we will pick up again uh, with what happened after that speech ended. So I'll read from Acts 6 and 7 in the very beginning of 8. You can follow along uh, where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from the book of Acts. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang uh, those ancient words that whoever seeks you finds that you are good. And so we pray, Father, as we always do, that we would find this to be true in our experience this morning, that you'd be happy to use this word that we've just read and heard together, that we're going to talk about together to lead us to the word that is seated at your right hand and who bears our flesh and who's praying for us right now. Show us his grace and mercy and goodness and change us by it. And to the extent that we find ourselves this morning as people who are not seeking, not looking for a million different reasons, would you work in us by your spirit and draw us close to you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, a kid, my grandma moved to Baltimore, to the city I grew up in. Um, she, she moved there to be nearer to us, nearer to her son, uh, as she got older. 
she was born and raised in rural West Virginia. Uh, and while I don't know this for sure, because I was just a kid, I'm guessing that that was a difficult uh, transition for her. And there were always things on display um, that were evidence of who she was and where she had come from, her accent, her cooking, her colloquialisms. And sometimes my older brother and I would go over to her apartment after school or on Saturdays, and we would just while away a few hours with Grandma. Her apartment had this little balcony uh, that overlooked an acre or two of undeveloped land that was just behind a grocery store. It was mostly weeds um, and a few clusters of really scrubby trees. And one summer afternoon, as a big thunderstorm was rolling in, my grandma called me out onto the balcony with her. And when I got out there on the balcony, she said, look at the greenery, it's going to rain. Now, at first, I I didn't know exactly what she meant. It was confusing to me. Uh, I thought she was talking about the, you know, the weird color that the sky takes on as a storm is coming in in the middle of the afternoon. But then she told me to look at the leaves. She told me to look at the leaves on the trees. Because of the way that the wind was blowing, the leaves on all of those scrubby trees out behind her place had flipped over. And the light green underbellies of those leaves were showing. And in her book, which was probably the old farmer's almanac, that meant that rain was on its way. I thought it was beautiful. I think about that every time I see leaves do that. Think about my grandma. There's this huge storm that was gathering outside of her place, this huge storm gathering all around her. And at the very same time, there was this beauty among the scrub trees that drew her eye. (laughs) And I have to confess that I thought about that while I was reading through Acts 6 and 7 this week because there is a huge storm gathering all around the first Christians. There is a huge storm on its way, a dangerous storm. It is a fatal storm. It will end up in martyrdom. But it is punctuated all around and everywhere with this great, great beauty. There's this new life springing up. People are coming to new life. The church, this young community, begins to work out very, very difficult things with great wisdom and discernment. There is this surprising, shocking forgiveness on display. And I think this this picture of a storm with beauty in it is a potent snapshot of the life of the church. Not just in the first century in Jerusalem, but the church everywhere, anytime. I think it's a potent snapshot of what it means to live the Christian life. So Luke situates the story with a reminder. He says, these things happened in the days when disciples were increasing every day in Jerusalem. And of course, that's been the pattern from the very beginning. We've seen that as we've been working our way through Acts. There were about 120 people in Jerusalem who considered themselves followers of Jesus after the resurrection. And for about 50 days or so, that number held steady. But then after Pentecost, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, the church begins to grow at this alarming, alarming rate. And we don't exactly have any way of knowing how many Christians were in Jerusalem at the time. 
But one of the things that we do know is that the charge against the apostles was that they had filled all of Jerusalem with their teaching. There are thousands of them, to be sure, in Jerusalem. Not that they called themselves Christians yet. That term hadn't been coined, but there were thousands of people who followed Jesus in Jerusalem at the time. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, too. One of the habits that they cultivated in their common life was this, this thing that Luke called the fellowship. It meant that they had begun to share life with one another, that they were trying to live as one family. These thousands of people were together doing the best they could with what they had to care for the needs of that community. They were embodying this kingdom of God that Jesus had taught them about to the best of their abilities. And I think that's part of the beauty that we see, even as we sense there is a storm on its way. It's easy to imagine how being a Christian who was committed to the fellowship in Jerusalem during those early days must have been amazing. I'm sure that it was compelling to people who were watching it all happen in front of them, even to their enemies, to their opponents. I'm sure it was compelling in some weird way. But it also would have been really, really difficult to pull off for all kinds of reasons. And what we have here is the first threat to the early Christians that came not from the outside, but from within. Luke says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, that is, of food. The Hellenists were Jewish folks from the diaspora, people who had been born and raised in other countries outside of Israel. And at some point in their lives, they had moved from wherever they were born and raised, some from really far-flung places. They had moved to Jerusalem to be there when they lived out their lives, to be there to die in Jerusalem. The Hellenists spoke the the common trade language of the world at the time. They spoke Greek. They mostly lived in their own neighborhoods, in their own enclaves, so that they could trade with one another and hang out with one another and and live life according to the customs that they were used to. And the Hebrews, of course, were native to the country, born and raised in Israel. They spoke Aramaic. So, you know... You don't need to be a sociologist to figure out what's happening here. It's not pretty, but we have to call it. This is pressure. It is pressure on one of the oldest and saddest and most familiar fault lines that human beings face. The distinctions between people of differing ethnic or linguistic backgrounds. The stratification of one another by the other according to those criteria. I mean, not caring for all of the widows, that was bad enough. The fact that there were some widows that were going hungry, that was bad enough. The Old Testament is is full of admonitions to care for the most vulnerable populations. The list that we heard in that Old Testament lesson this morning, it gets repeated again and again and again in the Old Testament. Show kindness and mercy to one another. The widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. 
In fact, the minor prophets had gotten to the place where they said that the way that those populations were treated, the way that the vulnerable people were treated, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, that was an indicator of the spiritual health of God's people. But you add to this neglect the fact that the neglected were not native-born, that they came from a different culture, that they spoke a different language. And what we have here is a real threat, a real threat to the vocation of the church, a real threat to the identity of the church whom Jesus has made into one new humanity. Do not be mistaken. A storm is gathering. And it's good for people like us to stop for a moment and to consider what this means for us in our own lives. First, in our obligation to care for the vulnerable. The voices of the prophets, the voice of Jesus is one on this and clear that one of the things that we're supposed to do with what we have is to care for the vulnerable. And of course, one of the places that this has to be worked out, that it should be worked out, is in the common life, in the bigger picture, common life of our church. And when I think about this, I'm glad to be able to say that we as a church, in our common life, we together support work among the vulnerable in several places here in Chicago, in places around the world like Haiti and South Africa. And I can tell you I am always, always incredibly encouraged when we do these mercy collections and I see the incredible generosity on display here. I'm incredibly encouraged when we are physically present in places where the vulnerable are, like several of you were at Breakthrough serving on the coldest day of the polar vortex a couple weeks ago. It's incredibly encouraging. But let me encourage all of us to work this out and to take action on this as individuals and as families too. Are you, am I using some of what I have been given, my time, my money, my talents, to care for people who are vulnerable? Because that work, that sharing, is a regular part of what it means to be united to Jesus by faith. It is just part of what people who are united to Jesus by faith do. And if it isn't a regular part of your life or of mine, then we should make it so. And it's also good for us to stop and to think about the, the way that our own actions or in actions towards the other, other races, other ethnicities than our own, how those actions and thoughts have been tainted with pride or disdain or mistreatment or neglect. It is amazing to me that this is the first thing that the church had to deal with the first real threat to the church from the inside was this. And they deal with it not only early, but often, as we will see, 
and so do we. We need to continue at it. And church, here is the really, really good news. We do not fight against these sins with some kind of brittle, pull-up-your-bootstraps moralism. We don't fight against these sins by, by waking up in the morning and saying, we're just going to do better and feeling shame and then hoping that we'll just do better. We do not fight with those weapons. We have access by faith to the Jesus who made a new humanity. We have access by faith to the Jesus whose cross tore down the dividing wall of hostility between humans. It has been torn down. We have access to that Jesus. That's who we follow by faith. And that means that people like you and I, we have access to all of the strength, all of the peace, all of the grace that we need to actually love the other and to weaken the sins of racism, to weaken the sins of pride in us. Church, this is one of the things that Jesus has come to do for people like us, and he will continue to do it. So Luke makes it clear that the responsibility for this neglect lies at the feet of the apostles, and we know that it's their responsibility because they call a meeting They call everyone together, and this is what they say. They say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And I think it's important, it's very important to say that this question is not a question about the relative importance of either of those tasks. Remember this, please remember this, that Jesus had told the apostles more than one time that he did not come to be served, that he came to serve. Remember that on the night that he was betrayed, on that night before the cross, he took a basin of water and he took a towel and he washed the disciples' feet and he said, this is how you should love one another. (laughs) All right, I think that they got it. I believe that they got it. And they also had this commission from Jesus, this work that they had been given to preach and to pray in order to establish the church before they died. And they believe that for them to neglect that would not be right, no matter how many other good things, no matter how many other important things had come to their attention. So what do they do? They do something really important. And I think really great. (laughs) They decide to give away authority. They give it away. They asked the whole group, choose seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, and they will care for this work. For the apostles, that took humility. Humility to acknowledge that the problem was theirs. Humility to acknowledge that they did not have the resources to be able to care for that problem. And it took wisdom, wisdom from the apostles, to decide that these new leaders should come from the people, not by appointment. And you know what else happened that day? That young church, those baby Christians, those new people in the faith, they showed incredible wisdom and incredible discernment. I know we don't catch this because we read in English, but the names of all of the ones chosen, Greek, every one of them. These new leaders who stand now beside the apostles come from the ranks of the neglected. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. This humility, this 
wisdom, this discernment that's on display, they are all pictures of beauty in the face of this gathering storm. They are both there, the storm and the beauty, side by side together. You know, we should not kid ourselves. This could have fractured the movement, but it didn't. And that was a great grace from God. And Luke takes it for granted that this approach worked. He he doesn't even say another thing about it. Apparently, the Hellenic widows were very quickly enfolded back into the daily distribution of food. But what Luke does say is very telling in verse 7. He says, The disciples, the number multiplied greatly, priests came to faith, and the word of God continued to increase. Again, beautiful. It's not the apostles who are growing this thing. It's not this new team of leaders who are growing this thing. It is God who is growing this thing. And one of those new leaders, one of these young, fresh faces, Stephen, full of grace, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit, he is doing amazing things, Luke says, many signs and wonders among the people, more beauty, more grace in the face of this gathering storm. And you would never think, you would never think, reading about all this incredible stuff, this sharing of leadership, this giving away of authority, this new growth, these amazing things being done, you would never dream that in just a few days these same people will face the scattering of the fellowship that they had worked so hard to cultivate. You would never dream that in just a few days they would suffer the violent loss of one of their brightest leaders. And church, here's just what I want to (laughs) suggest. This is how the Christian life always works. This is what life as a follower of Jesus is like. This is what life in the church looks like. And part of people like you and me growing up as Christians, part of us maturing in our faith is learning to see and to celebrate the beauty of God's grace doing amazing things in us and amazing things all around us and amazing things through us right smack dab in the middle of a broken world that is indifferent and sometimes hostile to us. Part of you and me growing up as Christians is to see the beauty of God's grace doing stuff in us and through us and all around us despite our own sketchy decisions and questionable judgment and neglectful oversights. You know why? (laughs) Because it is the church that Jesus loves. It is the church for whom he gave his life up It is the church that he loves. (laughs) So he is definitely going to stir up beauty right among the scrub trees. The leaves are going to flip over. They're going to flip over in the wind and our breath will catch. And you can be absolutely sure of that because Jesus loves the church. Watch. Watch how it happens. The end of Acts 6, which we didn't read, is about the framing of Stephen. Luke says he was framed because there were some who could not withstand the spirit and the wisdom with which he was speaking. I think it's interesting that one of of these ones who were chosen to administer food to the widows 
is a really good preacher. (laughs) And it's interesting that the reason that's given for the opposition against him is very similar to the reasons that were hurled at Jesus before his execution. And so it should surprise absolutely none of us in here that those who stand against him gin up charges against him, just like they did with Jesus. They find people to say, hey, this guy Stephen never ceases to speak against the temple and against the law. And Stephen's answer to those charges are in chapter 7. They're well worth reading later. In them, he retells the story of God and his world. And in the retelling, he makes it clear that the temple and the law were always leading to Jesus all along. And this infuriates his opposition. And for them, it is the final straw. They seize him. They drag him outside of the city. They take off their coats. They throw them at the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus, who we will hear plenty about later. And they stone Stephen to death. Luke says on that day, a great persecution started against the church in Jerusalem. And except for the apostles, they were all scattered into Samaria and into Judea. Just like that, many of them lost their homes. Just like that, many of these Christians lost their livelihoods. Just like that, in one day, they lost their safety. They lost their security. Just like that, they lost the fellowship. The storm has arrived. And it is devastating. And there in the middle of the chaos of that storm, right in the middle of accounting for the loss of that storm, Luke wants us to see the beauty. He is desperate for us to see the beauty. And so he wants us to know how Stephen died. Under the rain of stones being hurled at him, cutting into his flesh, breaking his bones, he falls to his knees, and this is what he says. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then he died. Which is to say, he died just like Jesus did. Praying that the Father would forgive his killers. Because he knows a thing or two about grace. And he knows a thing or two about second chances, just like you and I do. And all I can think of is my grandma. Look at the greenery. (laughs) Look at the beauty coming out of this storm. This great grace among the weeds and the scrub trees. It It doesn't end here. But if the book of Acts did end here, it would be more than enough, more than enough to give us a picture of what faithful witness to Jesus looks like in a world that is sometimes indifferent and sometimes hostile to faithful witness to Jesus. With Stephen, there is no participation in the anger. With Stephen, there are no cheap shots With Stephen, there is no calling down curses. It's just a forgiven man who knows he is forgiven, invoking the white-hot grace of forgiveness on those who are killing him. If what we know about Stephen was the only thing that we ever knew about any of the first Christians, it would be enough to point us to the Jesus who taught us to love our enemies and who, in love, 
gave himself up to his enemies for our good and for the good of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to see. Help us to see that by your spirit you are creating beauty everywhere. Your grace, your forgiveness, your new life is everywhere in us, around us. Help us to see in the middle of whatever the storm is that we are facing personally, culturally, the storm in our city, this this storm that we hear of again, this thing that is close to home, the shooting in Aurora, this, the shootings that happened in our city over the weekend, help us to see that alongside of those things you continue to be faithful, to make beauty and good happen. Help us to see and to rejoice and to celebrate. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.